Open your Bible to the book of Romans. I love saying that. It's been a few months because of uh, various things. We're coming back to jump back into the study in the great epistle to the Romans. And I want to read the text that we're going to be uh, studying today and uh, to set that in our minds, and then we'll, we'll kind of introduce our thoughts. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, stop right there. That's as far as we're going to get today. <laughs> and for good reason. There's an old saying, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is it? Therefore, And the, this is such an important place in the book of Romans that we need to ask that. It's not the only place that we've seen therefore in the book of Romans. I mean, you could go back uh, and see so many. Chapter 2, therefore, speaking of the Jews after um, uh, dealing with the Gentiles, uh, you know very well, therefore, in verse chapter 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's a, a great therefore at the beginning of, verse, um, of chapter 8, therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ. This, therefore, is a little different, though. This, therefore, is a, a blinking light. It's a clarion sound. It is a critical juncture in the book of Romans. Now, before we look specifically at that, I want to back way up. We've been away from Romans for a few months and remind us of what we hold in our hands in the book of Romans. I don't mind telling you that Romans is my favorite book in the Bible. Now, I want to have a qualification to say if we do the book of Mark after this, it probably will be my favorite book during that time as well. And last week when I was in Deuteronomy, I think that was my favorite book too. And um, I've never said Judges was my favorite book, but that's, that's a dark book. And Ruth in the middle of, anyway, let's stop right there. I love Romans. I've been so blessed by Romans. I have needed Romans. God has given me the opportunity to study this. Thank you for being a part of my sanctification and my growth because it's been where God has redirected so much of my life over the last few years that I cannot even begin to describe. Early church father John Chrysostom had Romans read to him once a week. That was in addition to all of his other study and all of his other Bible reading. 19th century poet Samuel Taylor uh, Coleridge regarded Romans as, quote, the most profound book in existence. Friend to Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, copied it twice with his own hand. English Puritan Thomas Drake described Romans as, quote, the quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. The great Bible translator, William Tyndale, had the highest estimate of Romans. He wrote, quote, Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and a light way unto the whole rest of the Scripture. He goes on to say, No man verily can read Romans too often or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. The more groundly it is searched, the more preciouser, that's his word, preciouser things are found in it. Frederick Godet, one of my favorite commentators on Romans, says this. In studying the epistle to the Romans, we feel ourselves at every word face to face with the unfathomable. I can certainly relate to that. It almost feels like 
every phrase could be expanded into a multi-week study. Godet goes on to say, to point out that, and this is interesting, and I haven't traced this down, but he's a better church historian than, than, than I am, so let me just take him at his word. He said, every revival in the Christian church has been connected with the teaching of the book of Romans. Certainly that's the case with the Reformation. In fact, he says that. He says, the Reformation was certainly the work of the great epistle to the Romans, and to that end, the Galatians as well. It is probably that every great spiritual renovation in the church will always be linked in both cause and effect to a deeper understanding and knowledge of the book of Romans. That's a pretty profound statement. In his preface to his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther said this, this epistle is the chief book of the New Testament, the purest gospel. It deserves not only to be known word for word by every Christian, and yes, he means memorized by every Christian, but to be the subject of his meditation day by day, the daily bread of his soul. The more one spend, more time one spends on Romans, the more precious it becomes and the better it appears, end quote. I wonder who would take up the challenge to memorize the book of Romans. It has 16 chapters, 433 verses, 9,447 words, and every one of them drips with the grace of God. Think of this, over 60 times in the book, these are words rather that are used over 60 times, six zero. Righteousness, faith, law, sin, and the word all. Each of those is used over 60 times in this little, little book. And what is book, Romans? You know, we often say Romans is a great theology, and it is. But Romans is not a systematic theology. I have several systematic theologies on my shelf, and they take the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of end times, the doctrine of the church, and they outline those things. Romans is not a systematic theology. It's a letter. And in this letter, he systematizes theological understanding for us to easily access. It's a letter and it has recipients, the Romans, the Italians, the first generation of Christians in Italy. To study the book of Romans is to study the doctrine of sin, our martyology, the law, doctrine of law, nomism, the doctrines of gospel and salvation, that's justification and soteriology, the doctrines of faith and perseverance and holiness, that's sanctification, is to study the righteousness of God, the wrath of God, the love of God, the patience of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the study of the church, study of end times, and so many other doctrines we don't have time to even mention them. It is a remarkable book. I told my, my wife recently that I dread the day that we get to the end of Romans. And my temptation will be to say the next week, let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. It's not difficult, not rather easy to improve on John Calvin's words about Romans. He said this. It's really dense, so let me read it a couple times. Man's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, which, 
being offered by the gospel is apprehended by faith. That's the whole book. Man's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, which being offered by the gospel is received or apprehended by faith. That's the book of Romans in a sentence. He adds to that, if we've gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures in the Bible, end quote. That's pretty high words. Footnote and aside, okay? I, I believe that Romans is precious, and I'm so glad we're studying it, but it is, no, it is no more scripture than any other book in the Bible. It's no more profound and no more important than Genesis or Esther or Malachi or Jude or Third John or Revelation. It is a part of Scripture, and all Scripture is profound, and all Scripture is profitable for life and godliness. But this book seems to be a summary of the whole Bible. If you could take, as Luther said, the book of Romans, and it was all you had, you would have enough. It's a call for believers to understand our vertical relationship with God so that we understand how to live horizontally with the church and with others. Paul explains the theology of the good news, the gospel, which generates and motivates unity in the church. It fuels motivation and personnel for missions in the world. It's about the theology of the gospel, the mission of the church, and the unity of the saints. That's what Romans is about. Now, I'm giving you this background and this, this reminder because we've, we've said some of these things at the very beginning, but it's important now a few years into the study that we go back and we take a deep breath and we, we catch our breath and we take a rest and we understand what it's going to look like to sprint over the next five chapters. So, in order to start forward, we need to look back. So what I'm going to do is teach you the book of Romans verses, excuse me, chapters 1 through 11 at light speed in the next few minutes. I rarely say this, don't take notes. I just want you to sit back, put your pen down, and listen as I try to do something that we're going to need to do in the coming weeks, but I'm going to give you a one-shot kind of pass-by by, uh, at it. If you look back at chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. That word mercies of God is an interesting phrase. It's most immediately connected to verse 32 of chapter 11. He says, um, so that he may show mercy to all. But mercies, this is plural. I think the mercies of God here extends back to the theology that's contained in the first 11 chapters. And in order to understand that, so that we don't have to take a few minutes to, to do this next week, I want to do it now at the word therefore. Basically, he's saying, here are the mercies of God, therefore, and we'll talk about what that means. Chapter 1, looking at the mercies of God. Paul is separated to the gospel of God, and he begins his great epistle, you can turn back there and at least look, with, with a phrase that's so important, but it's separated and not easy to see. Sometimes it's valuable to go back to 10th grade grammar and diagram a verse on the board to see exactly where the, where the subject is, where the verb is, what's subjective, what's objective, where the predicate is, uh, what are uh, the modifiers, where are the adverb, the adjectives. Paul, in a 
apostle or bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the good news, the gospel of God. He set apart for the gospel. Now he gives you a parenthesis in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. That's a modifier. But if you just take the modifier and put it aside for a second and read the sentence grammatically, set apart for the gospel of God, what is it? Concerning a son. This is the theme of the whole book. This is the theme of Christianity. This is the theme of our life. This is our story and this is our song. The gospel of God concerns Jesus. We are called to be stewards of the person of Christ, not the plan of salvation. I understand we say plan of salvation. I say plan of salvation. It's okay to systematize it so we know how to present it to someone. But our philosophy is a person, not a plan. It's about Jesus, and it can be about Jesus because he's alive and not dead anymore. We read in our scripture reading earlier, right? The gospel of God concerning his son. We can stop right there. The good news of God, the gospel, is about the living Lord Jesus Christ. Does it include behavior modification? Yes. But only subsequent to the worship and knowledge and intimate affection for Jesus. He says he's connected to the Old Testament through David, the son of God. Paul says, I want to come to Rome. I want to impart my spiritual gifts to you. Enjoy your spiritual gifts in return. And then he says, the power of God is demonstrated in the gospel. I was asked recently, do you believe in miracles? I said, absolutely. They said, you mean like limbs regenerating and, you know, Sickness is being healed. I said, God can do anything he wants. Have you ever seen a miracle? Absolutely. When a person believes the gospel is the power of God. Is that miraculous? The power of God in salvation. And that's what Paul says he's set aside for. He's not ashamed of the gospel in verse 16 because it is his power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That is so important. Everyone who believes, that's the doctrine of justification by faith, by believing, which he's going to unpack in these next 10 chapters. Then he slides into verse 18 and following on looking at the depravity of man, specifically looking at the Gentiles, and he gives us a, a whopper of a list of sins and sinfulness Lust, envy, disobedience to parents, malice, homosexuality. All must face the, face the wrath of God. And by the time you get to chapter 2, he can feel the Jews kind of glorying in what he says, saying, that's right, Paul, stick it to the Gentiles. They're wrong, they're sinful, they're the ones who need the gospel. And he begins chapter 2 by saying, you have no excuse because you actually participate and ordain the same things. You judge people, verse 1, and con- uh, over things that you yourself are condemned for. Brings up the principle that the moralist who presumes on the goodness and forbearance and long-suffering of God is not a true repenter. Yes, it's talking about the Jews, but it's also talking about anyone who would morally look down on anyone because they need the gospel more than than I do. He says, God is impartial. He judges those who've heard the law. The Jews had the law, preserved the law. They've been blessed with the law, and yet they are not excused from obeying the law. And we find out something about God, which I think is so important. It teaches us 
why and how we respond to God. It teaches us so much about parenting and relationships and correction and confrontation. Remember chapter 2, verse 4? Do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness or, uh, and tolerance and patience, not knowing, here it is, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God leads to repentance. We're to imitate God. You motivate someone to repent by gracious kindness. You can't bad attitude someone into a good attitude. And God didn't do that with us. He woos us wicked, stiff-arming sinners to him by his kindness. Well, in chapter 1, he said the Gentiles are culpable before God. Chapter 2, the Jews are also culpable before God. They didn't obey the law that was given to them. So in chapter 3, he says, and everyone's culpable before God. The Jews, yes, they have advantages. They had the law. They had the oracles of God. They were committed to them at some level uh, superstitiously or externally, but weren't obeying and loving God from the heart. And then he goes into this incredible quoting of Psalms. None righteous, verse 10, not even one. No fear of God before their eyes in verse 18. All have sinned. All have sinned. No one stands before God righteous. So by the end of chapter 1, the Gentiles are in trouble. By the end of chapter 2, the Jews are in trouble. By the end of chapter 3, we're all in trouble. And so at the end of chapter 3, he says, let me tell you how to get out of trouble. How to... (laughs) Avoid is not the right enough word. How to escape... The wrath of God, which is rightly aimed at sin and sinners. And that is you believe that God has rescued you by pouring out his righteous, furious anger on someone instead of you who took your place. We call it substitutionary, someone who substitutes, atonement, covering. His substitute covers for us, and that's what justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is in chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. And here's the, here's the, the, the key in verse 28. We maintain, verse 28, that a man is justified, made right before God by faith apart from the works of the law. And this is the most amazing statement that could be uttered by human lips who are condemned by righteous, holy God. All we have to do is believe what he has done. We don't add anything. We can't contribute anything. Now, saying that would have been a shock to a Jewish sensible um, uh, thinker. No way. I have the law. I obey. They even added laws to the law. They were adding how many steps you could take and what you could eat and how you could clip your fingernails, all these things. And once Paul says, you're justified by believing, not by doing... They said, that's not Judaism. And if Christianity is presenting the Jewish Messiah, something's wrong. And so Paul takes chapter 4 to say, actually, that is Judaism. And it precedes Judaism. Because the greatest person who demonstrates this is the father of our faith, Abraham. Who, by the way, was a believer 14 years before he was a Jew. Abraham believed God... And it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith alone to be righteous. It's incredible. So he says in chapter 4, don't be so quick. This is the way God has always saved people. Which is another way of saying, 
no one was ever saved by doing better and trying harder and being good enough. So he comes to chapter 5 and says, we have access to God's grace through believing, through faith. And then he, he connects the beginning with the end, the first man with the last man or the most important man. He goes back and says, all sin came from Adam. We are connected to Adam by, by virtue of the fact that we received a sin nature from him. Adam was uh, uh, imputed or imparted to us depravity, being sinful. And we don't have to prove that. No one ever teaches a two-year-old how to sin, how to disobey, right? It's intuitive. Everyone knows that. We're born unrighteous, born with a stiff arm on God's face, born sinners. Now, not everyone expresses their sin to the degree that everyone else, that others do, but we're born apart from God. Jesus, who's called the last Adam, gives us righteousness that cures that and overcomes that and makes us acceptable to God. First Adam, last Adam. We got sin from one, we get righteousness and salvation from the other. The law makes man's sin clearer and greater by clearly contrasting it with God's holiness and his holy word. And Jesus, the great last Adam, provides salvation. Chapter 6. Wow, chapter 6. We have to be careful that we don't say the first 11 are doctrinal and the last five are practical or have all the imperatives. Because chapter 6 is chock full of imperatives. And it says, live like what you believe. How can we who died to sin, verse 2, still live in it? That's the theme of the whole chapter. If he died to take our sin away, why do we still pursue our sin? If the cost was so great, why is my sacrifice not leaning into that? And then he concludes by saying, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All we can offer is hastening to what we justly deserve, which is our death. And God in Christ provides eternal life, resurrection from the dead. So in chapter 7, he goes back to the law, and he uses an illustration in the beginning of marriage, that the law has an authority over the living, um, just as a wife is uh, bound to her husband, if, but if he dies, she is not anymore in the same way. When our sin dies, we're no longer bound to it. It's dead. It's not our master. And then at the end of chapter 7, he goes into this incredible description of his own uh, experience. He says, the, the thing I want to do, I find I don't do that. And the thing that I don't want to do, I find myself doing that. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this, this horrible condition? And I take that as Paul being a believer. You can go back and listen to the sermons on why. And uh, that he's saying, this is my experience. And it's very easy for the devil, the enemy, the accuser of our soul to use our sin after our belief by saying, see, you are not a believer. There's no way God would accept you. Look at how you're living, and he's right. But we're not accepted by God based on how we're living. And chapter 8 says, therefore, there is now how much condemnation? Zero. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus 
We live by the Spirit. We don't live by the flesh. He says we're adopted by God. We are spiritual orphans adopted by the Holy Father to be righteous children in a horrific world in which he says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says, let me give you confidence. You can be confident moving forward because you, you should have confidence in the past. He foreknew us, predestined us, conformed us to the image of his son. He called us, justified us, and will one day glorify us. And that idea of, ooh, predestination, election, what's going to, I'm glad Paul got into and out of that real quick. And then you come to chapter 9, where he really turns from pencil to ink on this subject. God is sovereign. He's so sovereign, he chose one twin and not the other before they were born, before they had done anything. He's so sovereign, he's the potter with the clay. He's so sovereign that no man can ever say, God, look what you've done, and question to him. That's how sovereign he is. And you're left at the end of nine scratching your head and saying, that was awkward. That was uncomfortable. Are, are, it was Paul a hyper-Calvinazi? What, what is this? And then you come to chapter 10. And the scripture balances the scripture. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who is predestined, elect, chosen, and called. Is that what it says? No. To everyone who believes. He says, I'll take care of the electing. You take care of the believing. You say, how does that work out? I can only believe if I'm elect. You're right. So what do you want me to do? Believe. How can I believe? Because you believe. And we're okay here at Mission Road believing both, are we not? And not making sense of it. Paul teaches this and he doesn't give us any footnotes. He says, God's absolutely sovereign and you must believe. Next verse. And we need to be that way as well. Israel tried to establish on righteousness, couldn't do it. And Paul says, God stretches out his hand in grace to disobedient Israel. Then we come to chapter 11 where he gives this great illustration. It's incredible. He says there's a trunk of a tree, has natural branches representing Israel. He cut them off because of their disbelief. He takes unfruitful, uh, uh, dead branches, the Gentiles. He grafts them into the stump. They start having fruit, and that makes the Jews jealous for what's happening because of the trunk. They're grafted back in by belief, and by the end of chapter 11, you have a church currently with Jews and Gentiles, in Paul's day, certainly in ours, and you have a future permanently that will include Jews and Gentiles living forever together in heaven. So in chapter 12, one of the first things he does is he says, here's how to get along in the church. Here's how to serve each other. Here's how to use your gifts. Here's how to, um, can I sneak ahead, just show you a little preview. Verse 3, for the grace, no, we're in chapter 12, given to me, I say through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to. There's the key to unity in the church. 
So that brings us to chapter 12 then, verse 1. Based on all of that, he says, now that you have that, therefore, I want you to live differently. It's the key that unlocks the rest of the epistle. And we need to talk about this and its implications before we go on. Now, before we jump into uh, this word, the word therefore, I think it's important to think about what follows it. It's a lot of imperative. It's a lot of commands. It should surprise, surprise no one, though, that, that that's a problem for a lot of people. We live in such an anti-authority, don't tell me what to do culture, do we not? No one likes to be told what to do. I thought about that this week, and I thought, why do I not like being told what to do? First of all, pride. Our pride pushes back and asks, who are you to tell me what to do? It's a good question, actually. Who are you to tell me? And the Bible has answers for that. That's the reason I struggle with it. Secondly, my flesh wants to keep enjoying the thing I'm enjoying that's pleasurable and sinful, so I don't want to stop doing what I like to do, and I don't want to start doing what I ought to do, and that leaves me in a sinful proclivity, inclination to resist someone telling me what to do. I think it's fair to say that sanctification is really the process of breaking down your resistance to Jesus' lordship in your life. Because we're all resistant to authority. But submission to his lordship is, is managing, it's pressing down, it's controlling, it's subverting, it's crucifying our resistance to his lordship over our life. And the rest of Romans, by the way, is going to do a lot of telling us what to do. Let me just say it this way. We said in the first few chapters of Romans, if you don't like being called names, you might not want to come. Sinner, ungodly, wretched. If you don't like being told what to do, there are other churches in the Kansas City area as well. Because Paul is about to unload. And it's for our good and it's for his glory, and it's for our enjoyment. Lots of imperatives. Now, it's important that you understand the exhortative section of this book comes after the theological section of this book. I love this about God. God is not like our dads who said, after giving us a command to do something, most often, when we said, why, followed up with, because I said so. Have you noticed that God rarely ever says that? He provides, before we ask why, he says, I'm going to tell you why you need to do this. So when he says, therefore, I exhort you to present your body as a living sacrifice, before you say why, Paul's going to say, I gave you 11 chapters of why. There's 11 chapters that tell you the mercies of God, what he spared you from, so this is why you live the way you do. Let me explain it a different way in theological terms. And these are important terms for you to wrestle with and understand. It's understanding what theologians call the indicative-imperative relationship. The indicative-imperative relationship. Now, let's go back to English grammar, 10th grade again, okay? I loved Mrs. Copeland. She was my 10th grade English grammar 
Yeah, I, I, she taught me such a good grammar. I remember I was in Greek during a, a, a seminary and wrote her back and said, thank you for teaching me grammar. There's an indicative mood and an imperative mood in the Greek and in the English noun. Now, when you think mood, don't think happy and sad. Mood just means the nature of the verb, the, the, how it acts. Let me explain it to you. The indicative is a statement. The imperative is a command. So, if I was to say the cake is on the table, that's an indicative. It indicates what's happening. It tells me a fact. The cake is on the table. Indicative. Fact. Got it? But if I was to say, put the cake on the table, that's an imperative. You hear the difference? It tells you what to do. Tells us how to respond. The indicative gives us facts. The imperative tells us what to do. There is always a connection between the indicative facts of the Bible and the imperative commands of the Bible. They're connected. There can be no imperative without an indicative. And if there is an indicative, there better be an imperative. Said another way, doctrine matters and it's practical. Said another way, theology is life. Said another way, life is theology. Remember we studied modesty? You're wearing your theology? You're right. You show your theology when you put your clothes on. You show your theology when you eat. You show your theology when you talk, when you drive. You show your theology when you sleep and how you sleep. You show your theology in your purchases. Everything we do is connected to what we believe about God or what we don't believe about God. So for the most part, the first 11 chapters are indicative. There's some imperatives in there. And for the most part, the last five chapters are imperative, and there's some indicatives in there. So just to, I want you to jot these down if you're taking notes. We weren't able to put a PowerPoint together today, but I want you to see this. I want you to have two implications, two implications of the indicative imperative relationship in Scripture. This will be very brief. Two relationships, two rather implications, two so what's, two implications of the indicative imperative relationships in Scripture. Pretty simple. The first is this. Good theology results in righteous living. Good theology results in righteous living. Now, before you absorb that, it's critical to understand what I mean by the term righteous. I'm not talking about moral. Cults can live morally. Righteous in the book of Romans means rooted to the gospel. So when we say righteous living, good theology, good understanding, good indicatives, creates righteous, holy living connected to the gospel which concerns his son. In other words, righteous living is living for and about and in context of Jesus. Not just doing what's right versus what's wrong. That's not righteous. That's moral. Righteous is doing it because of Christ, as a response to Christ. Not even to please Christ in a salvific sense, but to please him because we're being sanctified. Righteousness is defined and confined to motives and actions connected to Jesus and the gospel. That's righteous living. Good theology makes you live righteously. Growth in Christ 
and growth in Christ's likeness, as we said earlier, is the deliberate calming of our natural resistance to his lordship. Number two, bad theology results in unrighteous living. Bad theology results in unrighteous living. Let's kind of switch those around for a moment. Show me someone who's living for Christ, and I'll show you someone with good theology. Show me someone who's good theology, and they're going to live for Christ. Find someone with bad theology, and they're going to be unrighteous in their living. Oh, they may live morally, but it's not attached to the person and the glory of Christ. And show, someone, show me someone who's living unrighteously, and I guarantee you their theology is messed up. The indicative imperative relationship is critical. Do, do, do you understand the difference? The what is true has to work itself out into who I am and what I do. But who I am and what I do must be rooted in what I believe. I like that we're Mission Road Bible Church. But let me set you up for what's coming. And I need you to pay attention for just a few seconds. As I would say to my sons, look at me. Look at the, give me some eye contact. Ready? Biblical Christianity that Paul is about to describe in these last five chapters is considered by most radical Christianity. Let me say it another way. Radical Christianity is Christianity. All in where Christ is the point of our life, not a part of our life. How often do we sing it? Ever, only, all for, for thee. Ever, only, all for thee. That's, that's Romans theology. But do you do that? Have you really listened to our... Our, our mission statement, we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ. What's the next thing to say? In every dimension of life, think about that, in every dimension of life, that's radical. That's extreme. That's Jesus freak stuff. And that's normal biblical Christianity. Let's take a peek. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by these mercies of God, to present your bodies. That's the, that's, this is the realm in which we exercise our soul, our bodies. As a living and holy sacrifice, wow, listen to this libation, this, this um, uh, uh, sacrificial language. Acceptable to God, meaning there's a way to live in your body that's not acceptable to God. 
which is your spiritual service of worship. Yeah, it's kind of fuzzy, Paul. I don't really know what you mean. Okay, he'll go on. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your thinking, your mind, so that you may prove or exercise the will of God, what it is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I am excited and a bit trepidatious at what's going to happen in our church in the next weeks and months. I think we're going to shrink or grow. Oh, we may not grow in numbers. Not Rick, but Paul could very well scare many of you out of this church. Because Christianity is ever only all for Christ. Not part-time. And yet, those of us, almost all of you, no one that I don't know about, who are going to lean our shoulder into this passage, into these chapters, are you ready to be transformed? Do you, you understand what you just said? Paul said it's going to change you. Transforming. You're going to be a different person. Is that, is that in your desire set? Are you ready and willing to be transformed into a new person? Because that's what the gospel does. I'm a little nervous about this for my own heart. I already know, I've studied ahead, so I kind of have a head start on conviction. I already know things I'm going to have to stop doing and things I need to start doing as a result of these first two verses. And we're going to be in the first two verses for a while. Just, where else would you want to be? Is, is it okay if we just slow down a little bit? We'll do more than one word next week, okay? I promise. Every dimension is regulated by the word of God. Why do we shy away from being all in for Jesus Christ? Why? We're going to let Paul start asking those questions and picking those scabs and prodding us and probing us and saying, are you ever only all for him? I know you want to be, don't you? Don't you? But it includes, <laughs> it includes dying to self. Death is not a pretty process when, when you're doing that spiritually. So I just want to ask you, just as my friend, not as someone where I'm here, the Bible's here, and I'm preaching to you, but if I can just sit with you for a minute and, and just be on, on this side with you and, and just say, can, are you, can we make our church more than a meeting on Sundays? And make our faith more than a song we sing and a, Thing we say no to and another thing we say yes to. Are we ready, ready to be ever only all for him? This is going to be an amazing ride through chapters 12 through 16. And if you think it is for us, when I start telling you next week about the Roman culture he was addressing to do this in, it's not too far removed from our own.